It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. I should have provided a, um, an x-ray image of what's in my neck because that's part of what has stimulated this content for me. What we're going to talk about is uh, the grief pilgrimage. We're going to talk about that. 20 years ago, I broke my neck. This morning, I'm in pain. I have numbness and tingling in my extremities. My legs are weak. I can't lift more than 10 pounds. I have a constant headache. And God is in it, and he's working through it. And I've learned a lot about the grief pilgrimage, Psalm 84. That's what we're going to look at. Learning healthy grieving principles from Psalm 84. All right. So let's start with this. Sitting Shiva. Anybody ever heard of this? You have. Okay, great. It's a Jewish custom. Sitting Shiva. It's an example of what it means to mourn. Traditionally, when a close relative dies in a Jewish family, they sit Shiva for seven days. Family members sit on stools or on the floor to show that they've been brought low by a personal loss. There's no housework done. There's no normal activity around the house for those seven days. People often make a tear in their outer garment or wear a torn piece of ribbon on their chest to show that the very fabric of their lives have been rent. When guests come to call, they're not to initiate conversation, and if they speak, they are not to speak of the loved one who has died. The purpose of sitting Shiva, what is this? Well, it isn't to distract from the grief, if that's what you were guessing. That's what I guessed. Rather, it's to intensify it. It's to intensify it. Why would they do that? To feel the loss more deeply, to face it more fully, so as to give themselves the chance to resolve it in interdependent community before God. That's why. You see, empathy, which is this thing is really deeply embedded with, it's connecting with the emotion that someone else is feeling, not exactly the experience or circumstance. Well, we can learn from sitting Shiva. Here's the sermon in a sentence in case I run my mouth. Grieving well brings new healing and joy actually. When loss is faced, fully felt, and followed through to find hope and renewal in Jesus. To mourn, what is that? It's to be brokenhearted. And the heart in the Bible is the control center of a person's life. Thoughts, emotions, choices flow from and through the heart. When we say we're brokenhearted, we're saying that the deepest part of us, every part of us has been affected. When your heart's been broken, you don't just get over it. No, not if you're wise. Not if you feel fully. You don't just get over it. You think, you feel, and you live differently because of it. You grow wiser and more tender. You don't just get over it. Let's talk for a moment about the context of Psalm 84, because the first rule of Bible hermeneutics is context, context, context. What's the context, context, context of Psalm 84? It's this. It's a pilgrimage to Jerusalem that God required of the Jews three times a year. Three of the seven feasts required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Didn't matter where you lived in Israel, God required this of you. You dropped what you were doing. It's an agrarian culture, okay? Somebody else takes care of the flocks. Somebody else tends your stuff. And you, it, it's a planned thing. It is not done impulsively. And the purpose of this pilgrimage is to reorient their whole life around God regularly, routinely, systematically, purposely. That's 
the reason. It's not ritual. It's purposeful. Three times per year. So let's read it. Psalm 84, verses 1 through 7. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of heaven's armies. I long, yes, I faint with longing to enter the courts of the Lord. I want to be close to you, God. I really want to be with you. I, I, I really want not just to know about you, but to know you. With my whole being, body and soul, I'll shout joyfully to the living God. Yeah, I want to first purpose of my life is worship. I want to worship you with everything I have. I want to learn how to do that. Even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow builds her nest and raises her young at a place near your altar. Okay, here's my translation or my parallel translation of that. I might be a bird brain compared to some people I know. God still wants me at his altar. He wants me in his presence. I'm welcome there. You're welcome. O Lord of heaven's armies, referencing God's incredible power, my King, my God, what joy, what joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. What joy for those whose strength comes from the Lord, who have set their minds on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, who have set their minds on pilgrimage to Jerusalem, okay? That's the phrase we're going to unpack today, grief pilgrimage, who have set their minds on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When they walk through the valley of weeping, not if, when, when they walk through the valley of weeping, it'll become a place of refreshing springs. The autumn rains will clothe it with blessings. We'll come back to the valley of weeping. They'll continue to grow stronger. Okay, this is a lifetime journey. They'll continue to grow stronger, and each of them will appear before God in Jerusalem. This pilgrimage thing might be as many as 90 miles to walk to Jerusalem. If you're really wealthy, you got a camel or a donkey. If you're not, you're walking. I think I would have probably found a parcel close to Jerusalem to make it a little easier. But here's the deal. It didn't matter where you started from. You had a valley of weeping to face. In Hebrew, it's valley of Bacah. If you do a little context, context, context work, you find out there was no specific place in Israel called the valley of Bacah. No specific place. You know why? Because it didn't matter where you started from. You're going to face some of this. You're going to face the valley of Bacah, and it'll be unique to you, and it'll tempt you to not make the pilgrimage. It'll tempt you to turn back. It'll tempt you to say, it's not worth it. God's too mysterious anyway. Seems I just learn more about him. I don't experience him. Yeah, the Judean wilderness, it had a, it had a valley of Bacah for everybody, a valley of weeping. It wasn't easy. Nobody looked forward to the valley of weeping. This isn't about masochism, this grief pilgrimage. I could think of only one creature that would smile at the valley of weeping, Mr. Camel. God doesn't expect you to smile at it. He does expect you to feel fully through it. What does it mean to be emotionally intelligent? Well, the third leg of that stool, I won't go through it all, is to feel fully without being controlled by emotion. Some of us don't want to go there. We don't think God's in it. So the grief pilgrimage, the valley of weeping, the valley of Bacah, it's going to be part of your story. Count on it. Don't you know the Americanized Jesus is not the biblical Jesus? Americans don't expect suffering. They don't think trouble, even though it says it explicitly, is going to be woven into every story. 
grief pilgrimage. What does it look like, okay? It's a strenuous journey. It really is. It's actually a lot of work. Normal life is disrupted. And if you don't disrupt normal life, your grief goes on and on and on. And it doesn't get resolved. Because you didn't do a strenuous journey. You ran away from it. Normal life is disrupted. Rhythms of work, everyday routines, they're set aside for something God deems more important. Just like the pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year. Regular rhythms of work and life had to be set aside for something God deems more important. You see, if you don't have loss threaded into your story in a fallen world, may I say it? You'll be full of yourself and you will not reorient your whole life around God, and you'll be overattached to his gifts and underattached to him. Take it to the bank. I say it gently, I'm preaching to myself. Visible progress is slow. You walk through that valley of tears. <laughs> you make this pilgrimage day after day, Ju Judean wilderness. The landscape just looks barren. Same day after day. Where's Jerusalem? Where's the payoff? How can God be in this? Patience. He is. Yeah, landscape looks the same day after day until Jerusalem and the temple come into view. Here's another one. Destination's uncertain. You've got influence over this. You don't have control. You have to voluntarily participate. But you only have influence. You do not have control. What do I mean? Well, you know, all the careful planning, all the working ahead to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year, well, the outcome could be easily scuttled, and it often was. How? Bad weather? Bandits? Illness? Injury? Yeah, you've only got influence. You don't have control. Process is complex. This pilgrimage was complex. I... I it, there's many more facets I'm not giving you. And the grief pilgrimage is complex. I've got to go a little faster. I'm 13 minutes in and I've only got 17 left. Grief complexity. Now, you've heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. She first came up with this stuff. She's partially been discredited because she insisted on a linear, rigid progression. It isn't that. She said everybody else has to have all five. That's not true. That's well proven now. But these five ingredients, they're generally present in the complexity of grief. And may I just say, there's many faces of loss. Grief can come from concrete external loss that is very easy to see and measure. And grief can come from internal symbolic loss that is very difficult to see and measure. Why do people have midlife crises? Symbolic loss. First thing, and this pretty much always happens, denial. Shock, numbness, disbelief. You feel overwhelmed by the loss. This can't be happening. Denial. Anger. <laughs> so important. Big deal. Christians tend to deny it. We want, a good we want to be good people. 
Good people don't get angry. Oh, yes, they do. Would you read the Gospels? Jesus was pretty good. So important, but secondary. <clears throat> Am I hurt? Am I frustrated? Am I feeling insecure? There's roots to anger. That's a different message for a different day. But you've got to validate this. You can't just stuff it. You stuff it in the trunk, it comes out sideways. Protest. You validate it. It comes from our desire to value and fight for life in a fallen world. We fight loss. It's okay. But there's a danger here because if you can't let go of your anger, if you remain in protest, if you mourn in the belief that you deserve better from God, let me say that one more time. This is a very big deal. If you mourn in the belief that you deserve better from God, your mourning won't bring the blessing of comfort, but the curse of bitterness. People in pain, haven't you seen it? They can become madder and madder, sadder and sadder, worse and worse. You think, and I did for years, well, now hold on. Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. We'll get there in a minute. Context, context, context. Another part of grief, it's complexity. What am I messing up? Bargaining. You know, this can be internally or externally focused. It's the if-only thing. If only I hadn't done that. If only I had done that. If only he or she hadn't done that. If only God hadn't allowed that. Bargaining. This could have been prevented. Well, the reality is we're powerless to undo most losses. And you come to recognize that eventually reality sinks in. I can't reach the goal. I can't turn the clock back. Grief complexity, fourth component, sorrow. This one is unavoidable, or you never get through the grief, sorrow. Heart-wrenching sadness. You know you're designed to cry out your grief. That's why God gave you tear ducts. There isn't shame in it. But there's trouble if you never get through it. If you pitch a tent, okay? Here's what the Israelites did not do, but some of us do. If you pitch a tent in the valley of Baca, life is not good. You walk through it for a greater goal. If my wife was here, she'd say, you're being too intense. But she's not here. Acceptance, okay? <laughs> you can smile at the future because as you let go of your grief, of your protest, of your bargaining, of your anger, of your sadness, those parts of you that were attached to whoever or whatever you've lost become available to what the Lord has next for you in life. Easier said than done. Sounds kind of neat and orderly, doesn't it? Sort of like... Oh, these five ingredients, put them in the blender. You know what it's really like? <laughs> Messy. And you can't contain it all the time, and the top flies off, and stuff gets on the people around you. Anger, bargaining, sorrow might fly out all over. That's why we don't want to go there. Fully facing grief. Community required, 
This is not a solo project. You know what the Jews never did? They never did this. They never did this. Study it. They never went on the pilgrimage alone. The grief pilgrimage, God did not design you to do it alone. No, he did not. Independence on him, in interdependence with each other, that's how he designed us to do this. Some community required. We talk it out. Put words to your pain. You come to terms with the meaning of your loss in community. You know, Romans 12, 15. Be happy with those who are happy. Weep with those who weep. Here's an interesting quote from a guy named Jonathan Frower. He said, I spent my lifetime learning to feel less. Every day I felt less. Is that growing old? Or is it something worse? You cannot protect yourself from sadness without protecting yourself from happiness. It's very profound. Oh, he's right. He's right. You say, you know, that's not in the Bible. Oh, yes, it is. Jesus, a man of grief, acquainted with sorrow more than you'll ever be, and anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions. Oh, yes, Jesus felt fully. Oh, yes, he did. Yeah, my wife would definitely say I'm getting too intense. Okay. So what are we talking about? Feel fully. Don't suppress. Is that in the Bible? <laughs> Read the Psalms a little bit. 70% of it are components of grief. You don't believe me? Get Derek Kidner's commentary on the Psalms, the best commentary ever written. Yes, 70% of the Psalms are the ingredients of grief, and it's the blender thing. Just like this, my soul's in deep anguish. Lord, how long? How long? How long? How long? Do you know how to pray your anger? Do you know how to pray your anger? David did. It's okay. That's where to go with it. Fully, feel fully without suppressing. Don't stuff. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome with distress and sorrow. It's okay for you to say you're overcome with distress and sorrow. It's not good to not say it if you're overcome with distress and sorrow. You know what the Psalms is, don't you? It's a prayer journal from a man after God's own heart. Feel fully without stuffing. Feel fully without self-pity. This is tough. This is not easy to do. 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, you've mourned long enough for Saul. Fill your flask with oil and go. Context, context, context. This is 1 Samuel 16. What happened in 1 Samuel 15 over a year earlier? God mourned with Samuel. This wasn't stuffing. God was not saying, stuff it, son. 
you can't grieve. Nope. In 1 Samuel 15, which actually was about two years prior to 1 Samuel 16, if you harmonize the Bible, Samuel and the Lord grieved together in community. They're on the pilgrimage together. But in 1 Samuel 16, God's effectively saying, Samuel, your mourning is morphing into self-pity, and that's a ditch in which you'll drown. Come on out, son. That's a destructive place to be. Time to stop grieving. You've pitched a tent in the valley of Baca. Take your tent down. I have work for you. Fill your flask with oil. There's a future. There's a hope. Come out of the valley, son. I've chosen a new king for you to anoint. I know you want the old one back. You're not going to get him. Move, and then following through the rest. Truly my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from him. My hope is in him. You see the Psalms, which model how to process grief in prayer before God, naked prayer before God. It's exhaling those components of grief and inhaling grace and truth, and it is dynamic. It's just like how you breathe. What is breathing? Exhaling carbon dioxide or inhaling oxygen? Yes, both and. What if you only exhale carbon dioxide? I've seen it. I used to be a registered nurse. I worked in an operating room in a trauma center. I saw a lot of grief. You know what happens if all you do is exhale? You die. You have to inhale too. What if you only inhale and you don't exhale? You die. You have to do both. God made it that way. Well, Psalm 131, verse 2, and I'll be really quick. <laughs> I've calmed and quieted myself like a weaned child who no longer cries. Anybody here ever wean a baby? Anybody? This is remarkable. Nobody here has ever done that, and yet <laughs> I see little children in the room. So if a baby being weaned could talk, what would they say? Don't you hear me crying? You see, I'm hungry. Don't you even care? This was the perfect meal plan. I never wanted to change it. Why would you? It's clear what I need. How dare you hug and coo at me? yet refused to nurse me. Rivers of living water right there. You must be cruel. What happens if a well-intentioned, ill-advised set of parents don't wean the baby until the baby agrees, understands, and gives informed consent? All the wheels come off. What if God did that with you? All the wheels would come off. So, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. Let me just wrap up with this. If we mourn in the false belief we deserve better from God, our grief will not bring the blessing of comfort, but the curse of bitterness. That blessed are they who mourn, they'll be comforted. That's 5-4. It's built on. All of them are built on 5-3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What is that? The Greek for poor in spirit means you're totally morally bankrupt. You can look it up. It means you before a holy God. All of your righteousness isn't even worth two pennies in your pocket to rub together. That's what it means. You get in touch with how morally depraved you truly are. And let's just face it, by Jesus' definition, you've committed murder and adultery a thousand times over, and you deserve wrath. Yes, it's the gospel. You're worse than you thought. You're so bad, Jesus had to die for you. And you're so loved and valued by God, Jesus was glad to do it. That's the gospel. And if you mourn in the belief the false belief that you deserve better from God, you will not get better. You will not be comforted. You have to fight that false belief with the truth. You got to take on some gospel arithmetic and hold on to it. What is gospel arithmetic to really hold on to? It's this. God's grace does not come to people who morally outperform others but to those who admit their failure to perform and acknowledge their need for a savior. Gospel arithmetic. You know, religion believes I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. I'm tempted by that, but I know it's false. The operating principle of the gospel is I'm accepted by God through what Christ has done, therefore I obey. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Because then when you mourn, you'll be comforted. It means this, Christian gospel. I am so flawed. Jesus had to die for me. And I'm so loved and valued by God that Jesus was glad to die for me. It leads to deep humility and confidence concurrently. We're done. I'm going to pray. Sermon in the sentence. Grieving well brings new healing and joy when loss is fully faced, fully felt, followed through to find hope and renewal in Jesus. If, I, if, if I've offended you with my uh, getting excited, please forgive me. Because I'm not angry, but I am passionate because I've seen so many go in the ditch and not come out. Let's not do that. Let's pray. Lord, I worship you. <laughs> I worship you. I want to make that pilgrimage. No, I don't want the valley of tears. But you have walked me through the valley of tears, and you seem to keep doing it. And so I'll make the pilgrimage. Would you teach me how to grieve well? 
so I could meet with you, so I could reorient my whole life around you, so I could learn to love you more than your gifts. Could we all please learn how to do that? Easily said, done with great difficulty over an entire lifetime. Amen.